0: hello and welcome to the good friends of jackson elias a regular podcast about call of cthulhu horror films and horror gaming in general i'm paul fricker i'm scott dalwood and i'm matt sanderson and once again, this episode, we're closing our eyes and drifting away with Randolph Carter on his dream quest of Unknown Kadath, part two.
1: Before we get into all that good stuff, however, what is going on?
2: I hear the stars are aligning sometime in is it February, kind of mid-February,
1: perhaps. Yes, but they're starting to align earlier than that. So the next Weekend with Good Friends, the fantastic online gaming convention organised by our wonderful listeners, will be taking place between the 18th to the 20th of February, 2022, that is. If you are interested in taking part... Things are kicking off a bit earlier than then. So, the GM signups, if you're interested in offering a game, will open well, actually, have already opened by the time this episode goes out. Will be running between the 14th to the 27th of January. Then If you're interested in playing any of these games that these GMs have offered, then the sign-ups for players will take place between the 4th to the 10th of February. And, as I said, the convention itself kicks off then on the 18th of February. All of this will take place on our Discord server. If you're interested in learning more, taking part, etc., then do take a look at the Discord server. I'll put a link in the show notes. And you can also find a link just generally on blasphemous
0: And talking of blasphemous tomes, the Blasphemous Tome fanzine, issue 8, should be heading your way soon for all our $5 backers. We send out a a hard copy. It's been rather delayed this year because, well, I'm glad to say, Mr. Sanderson, you're recovering well from COVID.
2: Yeah, the, the cough is still lingering, the voice is still a bit rough every so often, but yeah, it's it's a hell of a lot better than what it was. Thankfully, the tone will not contain any extra gifts from all the coughing and spluttering that I did on my <laughs> computer while I was putting the
0: thing together. Good, good. No digital viruses.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and all the colour on it is ink and not phlegm. Mm,
2: although the colour was pretty uh, similar at times.
1: Really
0: selling it now. <laughs> And just before Christmas, I issued a revised edition of my Call of Cthulhu scenario, Dockside Dogs, on the Miskatonic Repository. So if you're interested, that's there now. So that's a modern day-ish. I mean, it can be modern day, it can be set in the 90s, or other periods are available. Fairly easy to transfer to different periods. And based on a film which this year will be 30 years old. Holy shit. Now I feel old. (laughs) Fuck
1: off, Matt. (laughs) (laughs) And now
0: on to our main topic, The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, Part 2.
1: When we last left Randolph Carter, he had been drugged and taken aboard a sinister sea vessel in Dylathleen. The ship had sailed forth and has now just encountered a monstrous cataract in the ocean and of course sailed right into it but it's okay folks the whole ship has just emerged on the dark side of the moon the lunar landscape is covered with
0: ruins and dead temples that could have glorified no wholesome or suitable gods nearing civilization the boat passes farms with fields of white fungi now it does also reference that it lands in some other sort of liquid, the boat, as it lands mm. on the moon. It doesn't say what the liquid is, but it implies it's not just regular
1: water because it's, you know, it's like moon water or something. Well, I mean, astronomers have been telling us for ages that the moon's covered in seas.
0: Exactly. I thought it was cheese. Seas of cheese. Ah. Cheese seas.
1: So what you're saying is that the moon is one big fondue pot.
0: Yes. Mm. You can't get more 70s than that.
2: after journeying down a leprous looking coast that's just a hell of a statement
1: it really is
2: some of the descriptions are just so great bits of it which are falling off the boat arrives at a city of unpleasant gray towers with no windows the workers on the wharfs are not men but great grayish white slippery things which could expand and contract at will a sort of Toad without any eyes, but with a curiously vibrating mass of short pink tentacles on the end of its blunt, vague snout. I'd forgotten that about the moonbeasts, that they can be like pufferfish, they can just go, and suddenly
1: <laughs> expand. Well, it's also the mass of pink tentacles on the end of their noses. That puts me in mind of, what is it, the star-nosed mole? Is that right? Mm, mm, mm -hmm. These moles with these fantastic massive tentacles on their nose that are apparently the most sensitive touch organs on any mammal and can pick up vibrations and movements of worms and stuff like that from all over the place. So I'm sort of picturing these things as like big, shaved, star-nosed moles.
0: Well, you do get naked mole rats as well, which are like hairless, sort of pink things. But I'm guessing like a mole, they don't have eyes, and hence, why would they put windows in their towers?
1: Mm. Yeah, it's only somewhere that their slaves could escape out of. Very inconvenient.
0: I mean, ventilation as well, I guess, but...
2: I was just thinking it would be what i do with any house if I got the chance to brick them up and it's more space for bookshelves.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Carter also sees some of the merchants without their turbans or shoes, determining that they're not actually human and also that they're being used as slaves by the toad things. These creatures drag Carter ashore and lock him up.
0: So... I am right, yeah, that the slavers that have bought him here and the things in their hold that were doing the rowing and that they're, you know, maybe eating or getting eaten, they're all the same race of beings, it seems.
1: Not necessarily, no. It does seem to be a number of different things going on. So the slaves that were being taken down to the hold that were being bought in Lean, I don't think are ever doing the rowing. I mean, they were human. Right, yes. True. They just seem to be there for food. These merchants with the turbans and the shoes, we encounter them later elsewhere, Mm. and they do seem to be very different from the moon beasts. So it does look like the moon beasts have taken these Sporola men of Leng as slaves and are using them on the moon. Yes. So they all seem to be very different things.
0: But the moon beasts are the bosses here.
1: Yes, they are, and they may have been what was rowing down below. I mean, we're never explicitly told, but the fact that they're silent and eat human flesh and stuff like that—who knows? It could be something else down there. But whatever it is, it's probably pretty horrible.
0: Some time later, the creatures put Carter up for sale in a slave auction in the town square, where the toad things communicate by hellish piping from disgustingly carven flutes of ivory.
1: I want to know how you carve a flute, disgustingly. Lots of curves, I'm guessing.
0: Well, maybe the the listeners can help. I don't know. This
2: hideous sound is answered by the cries of cats from the surrounding hills, which give Carter hope. He sees small graceful shapes leap from hill to hill in gathering legions.
1: Before the foul procession had time even to be frightened, a cloud of smothering fur and a phalanx of murderous claws were tidily and tempestuously upon it. The flutes stopped, and there were shrieks in the night. Dying almost humans screamed, and the cats spit and yowled and roared, but the toad things never made a sound as their stinking green ichor oozed fatally upon that porous earth with the obscene fungi.
0: Now the cats made short work of the toad things and their minions. In the aftermath, by the light of the earth overhead, Carter speaks to the cats in their language. The general of the cat army turns out to be the grandfather of the little black kitten Carter had befriended earlier in Ulthar.
2: Someone made a bloody good luck roll there. Yeah.
0: yeah. And also, the cats do have like a militarized body with ranks and, uh, <laughs> and
1: everything. <laughs> that's just fantastic. The fact that they have a regular cat army.
0: Yeah. This whole story, at times I love it. And at times I just think this has just
1: gone a bit nuts now. But that's part of its charm. Lovecraft obviously had a fantastic imagination, as we've seen from his other work. But he, in the vast majority of his work adhered to that idea which we've seen him espouse before of trying to root everything in reality as much as possible to make the fantastical elements stand out more. But here, he is letting his freak flag fly. And I kind of love the story for that.
2: Before they can speak for too long, however, the cats hear the yowling of their arch enemies, the very large and peculiar cats from Saturn. Who they fear. The cat army decides to beat a retreat and offer to take Carter back to earth with them. That's very generous of them. He agrees and he is swept up in their leaping ranks, arriving back in his room at the inn in Dylathleen.
1: Now some time back we did do an episode all about cats in Call of Cthulhu and Lovecraft, and we did talk a bit about their connection with the Dreamlands there. But circling back on that a bit, Is this something we've ever really played with ourselves, this connection between Cats and the Dreamlands? Is it something that speaks to us in any way?
2: I haven't used them personally, but I have seen a nice little one-shot scenario that John Hook wrote a little while back. It was run on Into the Darkness a couple of times called The Silent Clouder, which First time I looked at it, I went, what the hell's a clouder?" I've got no idea what this thing is. But that was a nice little uh, tale set in Arkham with a, uh, a little fight happening between a bunch of normal cats and a cat from Saturn that had landed oh, there. Nice. That was a nice little scenario.
0: I think the only way I'm going to have talking cats in my game is if one of the investigators is suffering from a bout of madness and insanity <laughs> and they think the cat is talking. I mean, maybe it would happen. I don't know, but uh, it hasn't happened yet.
2: Maybe they ate the wrong mushrooms.
0: And maybe like following a cat might take you into like a local woods where there's a gateway to the dreamlands. I can kind
1: of see that kind of thing happening. Personally, I love this whole thing. I, I went to town with it in the chapter of The Curse of Nineveh I wrote, Catland, sometimes called Pussydom. I have read that as a standalone scenario for Ain't Slave Nobody. I'll link to it from the show notes.
0: And in that, you incorporate Louis Wayne, Scott. And I see there's yes. a film to, about to be launched. The magical world of Louis Wayne, or the electric world of Louis Wayne, or something like that?
1: The electrical world of Louis Wayne, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It came out in the US a few months back, and a few people I know have seen it there. In fact, a few of the people I played Catland with. And I've heard nothing but good things about it. I'm really, really looking right. forward to it actually coming out in the UK because I'm, I'm fascinated by Louis Wayne. He was a very, very strange character.
0: I mean, maybe that's a future episode for us to talk about the film and the man. Yeah. I. Be up for that. More cats.
2: (laughs) More films I didn't want to watch.
0: (laughs) Don't spoil it already, Matt. Keep your powder dry, you know? So the cats bring Randolph Carter back to the hotel where he was staying. Now, some days or a week has passed. Mm. And to me, reading it, it's almost as if that whole bit was a dream, and he wakes up in his room because it's like he doesn't really know how he got there. It's mm. not very really clear to him. But it did make me wonder you know, has nobody else rented this room in the whole week? <laughs> if he has just been sleeping there and dreamt the whole thing, I don't think that's the implication, but no, it just occurred to me like they drop him back in his room a week later. Return to save point. Yes.
1: <laughs> well, later on, we do get. An indication that people within the Dreamlands can have dreams. Mm, Oh, for sure. I think we'll save any discussion of that for when it comes up in the story, but that did my fucking head in. But yeah, a week later, the ship Carter has been waiting for comes into port. Carter asks the captain about Ingranic. The captain believes that no one alive has seen the carven face, possibly because the peak is guarded by Nightcorns.
2: What's the worst they can do? Tickle you to death?
1: (laughs) Yes. Yes, that is the worst they can do. (laughs) But this is one thing that leapt out at me going back to this story sometime later after having read it years back, which is... It's one of these little subtle deviations between what's established in Call of Cthulhu and what's in the original Lovecraftian stories. And it's just a small thing, but it's the spelling of Nightgaunt. Because in Call of Cthulhu, Nightgaunt is all one word, and Lovecraft, all the way through, I think, his correspondence and certainly in the stories, hyphenates it as Night Gaunt. There are all sorts of little things like this which are just. Subtly different between Lovecraft and what we've come to expect in Call of Cthulhu in the published materials. I mean, like the fact that he keeps using Dreamland as opposed to the Dreamlands here. There's not in this story, but the fact that in The Shadow of Innsmouth, Deep Ones is capitalized. But it's not in any of the Call of Cthulhu stuff. And also, I mean, here we've got something which I think we'll discuss more as it comes up, but the bowl slash dole contradiction and what all that means. But I keep wondering how these differences came to be codified in the game, whether they were deliberate choices or whether they were almost a mistake someone made fairly early on that's just sort of kept going as a house style.
0: Typo. The only one that's ever, like, come to my attention, really, was the capitalization of Deep Ones, which seems an odd thing to capitalise, because you don't capitalise humans or you know, dogs or something like that, so it's just a common noun, Deep Ones, surely. But Lovecraft capitalised it.
1: You know, yeah, to, he did. I think the reason that he did is that it is a, a sort of moniker that's been given to these entities. It's not what they call themselves, but it's what the humans came to call them. It does seem to be almost like a proper name, but I can see arguments either way. But yeah, I'm just fascinated as to how these little differences come about and how they get perpetuated. I don't see any of the published gaming material ever going back to the Lovecraftian sources, but it just interests me to see it come up. It's
0: just your pedantic editor I Scott. (laughs) Carter sails out on the ship the following day. They pass over the ruins of a sunken city too old for memory. Phosphorescent fish inside the ruins give the small round windows an aspect of shining. There is a monolith in the central court with the eyeless corpse of a sailor lashed to it. This is all very evocative stuff and also phosphorescent
1: fish is a fantastic alliteration. It's not just that, though, but is every bloody fish in the dreamlands either phosphorescent or luminous? Mm. Because this is something that leapt out at me this time, which i would never noticed in any previous reading of The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, which is the number of luminous fish that come up. I mean, it comes up a few more times in the story as it goes on. It's almost like Lovecraft's reflexive description of the moon as being gibbets every time he brings it mm. into a story. Here, every time he mentions a fish that fish has got to glow
2: how else can you see it if you're looking down to the pitch black depths
1: (laughs) (laughs) but that i guess kind of makes sense if it's a deep sea fish here but there are other ones in ponds and and rivers later on they're bloody glowing as well
2: radioactive fish
1: as you say paul this whole description of these ruins is very very evocative and it really does sort of leap out as a scenario scene. There are lots of little bits like this, as we've discussed in the story, where Lovecraft sort of throws these ideas out there and it doesn't really come into the narrative of the story. And Carter witnesses all this, but he doesn't really do anything with it. No. If we were putting this in the game, what would we actually do with it?
0: Yeah, I think it it isn't really following the modern novel format where Things that are mentioned are gonna be relevant and are gonna come into the the plot, if you like, mm. on the whole. Something that we see very much advocated
1: for in games a lot. But you've got this whole setting down there then that they're seeing below the the ocean. I guess the technology for deep sea diving probably doesn't exist in the Dreamlands, but that doesn't mean that you couldn't just hand wave something. But
0: Well, yeah, but also, Scott. They can get to the moon. <laughs> I was just about so to say. technology be damned. You know, you probably just like talk to a an otter or something and it'll take you, you know, down to the bottom of the sea. A sea otter, obviously. It'd be semi. otherwise. Talk to your neighborhood deep one, learn Breath of the Deep,
2: and then you don't have to worry about this air shit anymore. You True. just walk on down there.
1: Are there Dreamland's deep ones? They're not mentioned, but I'd like to think so. <laughs> But riffing on the idea of cats and so on, I mean, like you say, with maybe not a sea otter, but a friendly dolphin or something like that taking you down there, that could be quite exciting. Also,
0: bearing in mind what Scott just said about fish glowing, will fishmen also glow? So Dreamland's (laughs) deep ones, do they light up in the dark?
1: Hmm. I'd like to think that some seaside towns just use them as light sources. You just have deep ones standing in the corner of dark taverns, like standard lamps. There, just just giving off smokeless light.
2: Given that the the ghouls can, if they dig down deep enough, can burrow into the Dreamlands, I imagine deep ones could swim down to significantly greater depths, like the bottom of the Mariana Trench, and hmm. um, that may, in, in the illimitable Ooh. dark, have some kind of connection to the the depths of the Dreamlands oceans.
0: Yeah. Or unathly might have a a linko across, yeah. When the boat
2: lands in the picturesque port of Bahama, that sounds remarkably like uh, Bahama rather than Bahana. Carter speaks to the local lava gatherers. They must have some asbestos gloves for that.
1: <laughs> I think they probably wait till it's it's cooled a bit. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> This is them I imagine gathering things like pumice stone.
0: I'm liking the idea now that they just go out and gather like hot lava <laughs> in buckets.
1: And this being the Dreamlands, it just never cools down. Mm, yeah. You have a bucket of lava that you have just sitting in your house for cooking.
2: Yeah, or even like a little light sauce in there as well. Yeah, just don't don't get too close. Or maybe you can make lava bread out of it. Oh,
1: <laughs>
2: oh dear. But anyway, he speaks to the local lava gatherers and image makers. But none have seen the carving. He meets a tavern keeper who shows him a drawing of the mountain on the wall of one of his rooms, made by a traveller many generations ago. But it's too crude to be helpful. Evidently, the guy did not have enough arts and crafts skill. Oh, well. Carter is troubled by the images of winged, horned, tailed shapes surrounding it. Foreshadowing.
1: (laughs) Yes. Yeah, one thing this story is not short on is foreshadowing. Almost all the big stuff in the last half of the story is heavily foreshadowed. The next day, Carter hires a zebra and heads inland towards Ingranek. After making camp overnight, Carter awakens to find his zebra dead, exsanguinated through a single wound and surrounded by webbed footprints. Obviously a thirsty duck.
2: This makes the First Dead cover, or the box set of the First Dead Dreamlands supplement a bit more sense now. I haven't completely blanked the zebra before, but, of course, on the box set front cover, there is indeed a guy with a top hat riding a zebra.
1: Yeah, yeah. Later on, he hires a yak as well, so they clearly don't bother with things like horses and donkeys and stuff like that. It's beasts of burden in the dreamlands. They just go straight for the cool stuff.
0: Too mundane. (laughs) But also, it has to be said, he pays very little uh, care for his animals. I mean, I guess he kind of looks after them, but then bad things always befall them. Yeah. He's forever, like, starting wars or his steeds are dying. Nothing ever good comes of this.
2: Carter's just gone way down in my estimation.
0: So what is it that kills his zebra? Is it a Shantak? What, I think it is. Some sort
1: of vampiric beast. It's never spelt out in the story, I'm sure. And this is where I fail to do my research. I'm sure it must be spelt out in the Dreamlands book. But it does appear to be some form of vampire duck, as I mentioned.
2: Count Duckula. <laughs> yes. it's, the Cos- it's that famous Cosgrove Hall crossover moment
1: yeah. Can either of if you think what creature from the Dreamlands this thing is?
2: Could be an invasion from the Garantha for all we know <laughs> The only thing that I can think of that admittedly that sucks blood like that that may be through a single wound would be a baiki, but they don't have web feet.
1: I'm sure one of our more attentive listeners can actually tell us where we're going wrong here Carter meets a group of
0: lava gatherers returning with laden sacks from Ngranek's lower slopes. They tell him that one of their number was snatched by night gaunts. When Carter asks if night gaunts have webbed feet and drink blood, the men just shake their heads and look frightened. Yes, I think they probably would. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of a weird thing to see here. So this is some kind of mysterious beast that they know about but they don't want to talk about and they
1: don't like him talking about either well i think it's more that they're frightened to talk about nightgaunts that as carter has mentioned i and one of their numbers being snatched by them they're just so spooked that that kills the conversation
0: oh i read it it was more the i mean probably that and the the fact that there was another thing that was perhaps even worse yeah.
1: whatever it is they don't like it
0: yeah i don't know i
2: quite like count ducky when i was a kid The next day, Carter makes his way up the volcanic peak, passing caverns, abandoned villages and crude altars. This is a long, winding climb filled with dead ends. Carter is forced to rely on his skill as a dreamer to make use of impossible handholds, but finally reaches his
1: destination on the frozen peak. Yeah, this is like a number of pages of him travelling up the peak. I guess this is one of these bits where if Lovecraft had done a second draft of the story, he might have tightened that bit up. Then again, looking at things like At the Mountains of Madness, long, long passages of description aren't exactly off-brand for him, so who knows?
0: Stern and terrible shone that face that the sunset lit with fire. How vast it was, no mind can ever measure, but Carter knew at once that man could never have fashioned it. It was a god chiselled by the hands of the gods, and it looked down haughty and majestic upon the seeker. Rumour had said it was strange and not to be mistaken, and Carter saw that it was indeed so. For those long narrow eyes and long lobed ears and that thin nose and pointed chin all spoke of a race that is not of men, but of gods. So it's Spock
2: on a uh, (laughs) Mount Rushmore-style mountainside. That would be awesome.
1: Well, long, narrow eyes. I was trying to imagine what that would be. I guess he means long horizontally. Hmm. For a moment, I'd passed as long vertically, and that was even weirder.
2: Yeah, I'd definitely go for that just to mess around with expectation or perception there.
0: I mean, it seems to be perhaps taking like images of the Buddha or something like that with the long earlobes and the the kind of uh, almost closed eyes. Mm, Maybe, yeah. You know, one thing I'm kind of a little bit disappointed
2: with this section is that he didn't, Lovecraft, didn't go down the Hitchcockian route and have a fight over this face like North by Northwest. Oh, North
0: by Northwest, yes. That would have been a great scene. James Stewart as Randolph Carter would be fantastic. Oh,
1: God, yes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That'd be awesome. I thought it was Cary Grant in North by Northwest.
1: Oh, yeah, you're right. Steve. Is it? Yeah. yeah. Oh, But no, no I'm, I'm liking James Stewart as yeah. Randolph Carter. I'm now imagining him playing him the same way as he played Elwood P. Dowd in Harvey. Mm. I'd be all over that.
2: Carter realises that he's seen people with these features in the port of Celesthias, ruled over by King Kuranas. Who Carter knew in Waking Life. He has this web of connections. He's just, mm. oh yeah, I happen to be the relative of the cat general. Oh, you happen to know one of the famous dreamers. He just he gets around. Oh yeah. yeah. He resolves to make his way there starting at dawn.
1: In the darkness, however, something pulls Carter's scimitar from his belt and tosses it away. He catches a glimpse of a very terrible outline of something noxiously thin and horned and tailed and bat-winged. Worse still, this is only one of many such creatures.
0: The eerily silent night-gaunts snatch Carter from the peak and tickle him into submission. Flying, they pass over the fabled peaks of Thok and the terrible valleys where the bowls crawl and burrow nastily. Carter still prefers to look at these horrors than his captors, whose oily skin and facelessness disturb him.
2: He has got one hell of a confidence in his sand roll than if he'd rather look at a bloody doll than a,
0: than a night <laughs> <laughs> I think we've got to address the tickling here
1: what the fuck is up with that (laughs) well didn't this come out of lovecraft's childhood nightmares that he had recurring nightmares as a kid about these faceless nightgorns coming in and tickling him and taking him away
0: i gotta say that as i was reading about that and that that dream came from an early childhood memory yeah i don't want to make light of it but there's a dark side that you could plumb in that Jesus, yeah.
1: It's really hard not to go to some incredibly dark places when you hear about that.
0: Yeah. But I mean, that's just supposition, so,
1: yeah. Yeah. But the fact that he was so absolutely terrified of them, and this fear obviously went through to adulthood as well. Yeah, I mean, this sounds like more than just a childhood dream. But yeah, like you say, I mean, we're we're just guessing there.
0: But also that thing of the fact that he uses the word tickling, I find that disturbing but not in a frightening way and i came across the word recently and it kind of just made me react in a an almost similar way actually i was reading a totally different totally off topic book getting things done the art of stress-free productivity by david allen and in that he refers to a tickler file and I was like, what the hell is a Tickler file? It's basically a, a series of files, cupboard folders that you have, one for each day of the month and then the following months. And things that you're going to need or like an agenda or something for a meeting, you might put in like February the 22nd or whatever it is. And then as you go through the week, it's already there or it's something to sort of inspire you or, or whatever in the future. So to tickle your memory, I suppose, is the idea. But I just find that word unpleasant. Not in a way that I like it as a, a thing in a horror story. I just find it... Yeah, I don't know how else to say it, really. just It
1: just... Yeah. I just don't really... I don't like it. It's a fairly unpleasant thing, if you think about it. We tend to think of tickling as being a fairly, I guess, innocuous thing or playful thing because of his associations with childhood and making children mm. laugh and so on. But it is fundamentally a way of, here, uh, very much immobilizing someone. But it's even beyond that, it's something invasive. It's not violent, but it's... It's quite intimate as well. If it's done with love or playfulness, that's fine, but it yeah. can also be done with cruelty.
2: Yeah. Speaking as one who is incredibly ticklish, I absolutely fucking hate being tickled.
1: (laughs) Mm. Whereas I'm not ticklish at all. I mean, people have tried and it just doesn't really work on me. But on the other hand, I don't like people prodding and poking at me anyway. So it's still fairly unpleasant. So,
0: yeah. So we've got these things that are tickling him. It's kind of weird to me. Weird, unpleasant. I don't really like it.
1: Yeah. But that's the point they are meant to be unpleasant the tickling is an invasive predatory thing here yeah and also this area that they're flying over is where the bowls crawl and barrow nastily. Mm. so bowls dolls what's going on here are they two different names for the same thing are they different things what what's going on
2: if i remember right isn't it just different editions or different editors change the spelling
1: i believe so But on the other hand, I've seen some mythos of writers and scholars and essayists treat them as two different things. Well, I could be wrong. I don't remember Lovecraft in any of his original stuff using Dole. Am I misremembering that? Because they turn up again in Through the Gates of the Silver Key. Yeah,
2: because they devour the
1: planet that he goes to. Yeah, Yadith. And they're their bowls as well. But again, in, in Call of Cthulhu, they're dolls. But as I say, I mean, some people have argued that they might be two separate things. Mm. Do either of you have opinions on this, or is it completely unimportant?
2: <laughs> I'd always taken them as the same thing. It's a spelling deviation depending on different editions. It's ultimately referring to the same entity. Spell it how you like.
1: <laughs> it's yeah. a big
2: planet devouring, spice eating worm. That's what it is.
0: <laughs> and if you want to make it mm-hmm. something else, or one of them something else, knock yourself out
1: and also i guess the advantage of bowl as opposed to dole is the disambiguation because dolls are a type of uh, wild dog native to north Mm. africa if i remember correctly which probably don't eat planets or maybe they would if they were ever given the opportunity
2: but it's like running around catching a big ball floating through space isn't it the night gaunts deposit carter in the vale of panath yeah terrible holiday destination Home to the bowls and filled with bones, discarded by ghouls from the waking world. This gives Carter hope, and he once knew a man, Richard Upton Pickman, again with the knowing everyone thing, (laughs) uh, who befriended the ghouls and taught Carter their language. And this is one of my favourite places in the whole mythos cosmology. I love the Vale of Panath.
1: I love the idea that... The ghouls used the dreamlands as their rubbish bin. We're done with this bit, chucked in a dream. Okay, it'll be fine there.
2: Also to the point then that they have eaten so much that there is just this landscape completely littered with unknown depths of bone. Yeah.
1: Mm. Making his way through the darkness, Carter is struck by a falling skull. He makes meeping sounds like a ghoul upwards to where the skull came from and is answered by a glibber. A ghoul then extends a rope ladder down to him. Oh, what the fuck? <laughs> this whole scene just... I, I don't know. There are some fanciful bits, there are some playful bits and so on in The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. This bit just seems even more ludicrous. A skull falls in you. you make glibbering noises up, ghoul drops a rope ladder. I mean, this...
0: Oh, I don't have a problem with this bit, I have to say. I I find this a lot easier to swallow than the cat's bit, I've got to say. You know, I like the sentience that he gives the ghouls here, and I love the fact that Richard Pickman is reincorporated here, albeit somewhat changed.
1: Oh, yeah. I love all that. It's, It's just the rope ladder. I don't know. For some reason, it's this massive rope ladder that then takes some hours to climb.
0: Right, yeah, yeah, because Carter climbs for what seems like hours, eventually arriving on a crag far above. There he finds himself surrounded by ghouls who gnaw and watch him curiously. Some seem to eye him hungrily, but he glibbers to them, explaining that he is a friend of Pickman. Yeah, so he's got the ghoul language. He's got Mm. a lot of languages, actually. And later on, there is a reference to him later speaking to somebody, I think King Koran is, in his earth English. So it kind of implies that all the other languages he's speaking here aren't English.
1: Mm. Yeah, which then poses an interesting question, which is if you have a Dreamlands game where you have a bunch of new dreamers going to, I don't know, Selephaeus or somewhere, Mm. fairly innocuous in the Dreamlands, peopled by apparent humans then would they be able to communicate
2: that is covered in the book there is a common dreamland language that dreamers don't necessarily realize they're speaking but if you concentrate you can hear this kind of lilting language that they're speaking underneath what they believe they're saying so there yeah there is a kind of universal translator built into the dreamland source book
0: that makes sense in dreams i think because sometimes we know that somebody is somebody even though they look like someone different in a dream or So even though somebody was speaking a foreign language, you were hearing the foreign words and you didn't speak that language in a dream, I kind of feel like you might know what that was
1: being said, you know? But interestingly, I mean, you talk about that and it occurs to me that there isn't necessarily beyond a few flourishes like the cats jumping up to the moon and back. There isn't a lot of dream logic in the dreamland stories in general. Mm. This follows a coherent narrative. Events happen in order. People don't suddenly change identities and faces. Carter doesn't Mm. suddenly find himself somewhere different. And all the weirdness of dreams seems to be extracted from the dreamlands. They're actually fundamentally not very dreamlike.
0: Yeah, I would agree. They're not dreamlike as we know regular dreams. Perhaps one could argue they're more like a kind of a lucid dreaming thing, mm. that kind of concept of taking control of the dream and things becoming more concrete and real. Perhaps more like that.
2: They're kind of a fantastical landscape, but one that is in itself quite static and stable.
0: To some degree.
1: Yeah. yeah. I mean, we'll come to some exceptions to that very yeah. soon. But we have the introduction of the ghouls here. And the ghouls in this story, I think, are a particular highlight because they're. Just amazing characters, they're weird, they're repulsive, they're oddly helpful, and they have some weird degree of charm to them. Has this story had any impact on how we handle and present ghouls in our own work?
2: Oh, definitely, because they have personality. They're one of the few races that can communicate with humanity, probably alongside Mm. the likes of Deep Ones, that they're ones that you can almost relate to and actually have a mm. meaningful relationship with, other than, ah, it's a dark young, ah, it's a, a star spawn, quick break out the weaponry. There's actually a chance to do something more with them than just throw them at PCs as monsters to fight with.
0: In these dreamland stories, we see the protagonist, Carter, working with, allying himself with, various, what we would normally call monsters, in the mm. Dreamlands. Whereas in the regular non-Dreamlands mythos stories I think we very very rarely see and I'm trying to think of an example of the protagonist siding with the monsters so you know we don't see that in Innsmouth with the deep ones say we don't see it It tends to be the monster is always alien it's either neutral or antagonistic to us
1: yeah the closest is probably the Hints of sympathy, I'd guess, towards both the Elder Things in At The Mountains of Madness and, to some extent, the great race of Yith in The Shadow Out of Time. There's a sympathy for
0: the Elder Things, yeah, absolutely. Because uh, he sort of says about, you know, they were men. Kind of yeah. glosses
2: over the fact that they used us for food.
0: But at no point do they kind of ally and like work together to achieve some aim or make a friendship or something as they seem to do here. I think also this story has a big impact on ghouls. This is the only place I can think of that we see a man that we used to know become a ghoul. Yes. So he's actually changed states totally with no implication that it was like, you know, like the Innsmouth look, you might become a deep one, but you kind of always been a deep one underneath. Whereas here... It's a transformation.
1: There are hints in Pikman's model of the, I want to say, sort of similarities or the links between ghouls and humans. So, for example, there's the whole thing about ghoul changelings in there and the fact that they, in turn, snatch human babies and raise them as their own Mm. and they grow up to become ghouls. So I'd say that that's, hinted at in Pickman's model, but it's made explicit here.
2: An elderly ghoul leads Carter through a burrow filled with graveyard ornaments taken from the waking world. Finally, Carter is reunited with Pickman, now a ghoul himself. It has been so long since Pickman had human company that he'd almost completely forgotten how to speak English. Which makes sense. Throw yourself into a foreign country, foreign tongue, that's all you end up speaking.
0: Yeah, I don't think you forget how to speak English though. But I get I've... it's kind of get what it's implying. You know, it's a long time since he's
1: spoken it. Pikman is dubious about being able to get Carter to Celephus. The journey to the Upper Dreamlands, which this would require, involves passing through the terrible kingdom of the Gugs, monstrous beings who serve Nealitha They have been banished below the enchanted forest, beneath the great stone slab with the iron ring that we saw earlier. Their favoured food is mortal dreamers. Although they mainly subsist on the ghasts which live in the vaults of Zin and leap around on long hind legs, like kangaroos,
2: I love that this is basically going back to previous save point. He just keeps getting closer and closer (laughs) to the beginning of the story, the further he goes.
1: Yeah, he's going around in
0: circles. And what is it with ghasts jumping around with legs like kangaroos? Every
1: now and then, Lovecraft will come up with a description like this, which I'm sure in his mind was sinister or weird or a bit creepy or whatever. But you read this and you think, what the fuck, Howie? No. Also, I'm going to have three
0: monsters in this scenario. I'm going to call them ghouls, ghasts, and gugs. <laughs> oh, <no>. Christ, man. <laughs> I, I was just thinking he's evidently
2: got a kick on some kind of Eurasian animal kingdom because those deadly koalas that we've seen previously.
1: Well, those were all Gisterlith the sandwellers that, that wasn't Lovecraft
2: oh well, we know where Derlof got his inspiration from now
0: <laughs> instead Pickman suggests that they leave the abyss via Sarkomand, that deserted city in the valley below Leng or return to the waking world via a graveyard and re-enter the dreamlands via the gate of deeper slumber Carter resists this later option in case he forgets all that he has learned upon waking now nice question here raised if you're playing call of cthulhu and you're in the dreamlands is that a thing can you wake up and forget i don't
2: remember anything being put in the dreamland source book
0: because that'd be a bugger wouldn't it actually no no matt you don't get any uh you don't get to roll any skills or anything because you you forgot you
1: mm-hmm. forgot everything that happened it's a risk isn't it but but also I mean, we've got all these descriptions of Carter's previous dreams, the people he's met and the languages he's Mm. learned and the places he's found. So he's obviously remembered all this stuff. And yet somehow he's worried that something about the way that he'd be returning to the waking world and then returning back into the dreamlands after that would shake all this loose, which is weird.
0: He's an experienced dreamer, but he may well sometimes i kind of get the impression he has to exert himself to remember what happened and that's part of his talent just speaking personally sometimes i awaken and and you remember a dream but it's very slippery and you soon lose it so perhaps it's the same for him that sometimes he has you know made discoveries and then he's on waking he, he loses his grasp on them and they're gone forever
2: I can empathise with that. There's some dreams I remember incredibly vividly, even some from childhood that I really remember very, very, very clearly. And then others where evidently my dice have completely screwed me and I remember the dream for about five minutes after I wake and then it's just Mm. a big blank hole after that.
1: Yeah. But I'm wondering whether there's some implication here that it's related to the mechanics of how he's waking up that might rob him of his memories
2: you get a bonus die by one route you get two penalty die going
1: another (laughs) but also i'm very taken again with this idea of these weak points and shifting between worlds and he's talking about physically going to one of these weak points and walking through what he's dreaming as a mechanism for waking up I guess the implication is that it doesn't work the same way the other way around, because we've seen stories of people who have wadded into the enchanted wood and been eaten by zoogs, perhaps. Here, it seems like if you're dreaming and then walk into the waking world... Maybe that form dissipates or something like that, and you wake up in bed. I was thinking how cool it would be if that didn't happen, and that mm. basically if you dreamed and then walked back into the working world, each time you did that, you were like cloning yourself.
2: An army of doppelgangers.
1: Yeah, yeah the world is now filling up with the Randolph Carters.
2: There's a scenario idea right there.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, that does sound pretty cool, actually. Mm-hmm. Carter eventually convinces Pikmin to travel via the Kingdom of the Gugs, Pickman insists that Carter disguise himself as a ghoul, which involves shaving his beard and wallowing naked in grave mould.
0: Sounds
2: like a good Friday
0: night.
1: At least that's what they tell him. But this just sounds like such a player character thing. <laughs> it does remind me of a certain
2: PC of one of ours that did that in a bath full of sardine oil, if I remember right. <laughs> yeah. That was different.
0: I can see PCs doing this real easy. <laughs> also, it's a little like that scene in Shaun of the Dead where they yeah. pretend to be zombies, you know.
2: Oh, and Walking Dead cover them themselves in guts of the zombies.
0: Oh, right. Well, that's a very similar
1: yeah. idea then, yeah. And I guess it's the same reason, because we've been told that the favoured food of the Gugs is mortal dreamers, and so I guess by disguising himself as a ghoul, he's making himself look less appetising to the Gugs. Not that this really seems to make much difference, as we're about to see, because the Gugs don't seem to like ghouls very much either. (laughs) The party travel
2: through the Warrens, emerging in a forest of vast, lichen monoliths, reaching nearly as high as the eye could see and forming the modest gravestones of the Gugs. They see a stupendous vista of cyclopean round towers, mounting up illimitable into the grey air of inner earth. This was the great city of the Gugs, whose doorways are thirty feet high. And I love that description. That is a yeah. that, again, is so evocative and dark and
0: horrible. We've already had the flat Earth here where they sailed <laughs> off the edge of the Earth. Now we're getting the, um, what's it called, The like the underground the subterranean world, the hollow yeah. Earth. We're getting everything in this story. It's fantastic. <laughs> we are. Because that is right, right? It's like a, an underground cavern they're in, yeah?
1: <laughs> yeah, but there's the upper and the lower dreamlands or the, mm. the upper dreamlands and the abyss, and it does seem to be like two different strata. Almost like different dreamlands, but mm. are linked. But this whole thing with these underworlds and these great towers reaching up and it being described as a forest and traveling up to the upper dreamlands, this reminded me so much of the outsider. Mm. Mm.
0: There's clear parallels here, yeah. In that, the kind of a, the visualization of the physical landscape is very similar, mm. I think. Or the mechanics of it, at least. So maybe our ghoul friend did emerge from the Dreamlands
2: when he came up out of that hatch. Mm. Kind of makes you think he could have been one of those uh, little changeling-like babies that's been stolen, raised in the Dreamlands by, uh, well, raised in inverted commas because they did bugger all with him. And then that's his moment of escaping back to the waking world.
1: Moving through the darkness, Carter has a close encounter with a group of scabrous and unwholesome ghasts whose faces are so curiously human despite the absence of a nose, a forehead, and other important particulars. Before anyone can take any action, however, they are interrupted by a new presence. I just try to imagine how you have a curiously human face that doesn't have a nose, a forehead, or other important particulars, whatever the hell those are.
0: Yep.
2: His head just ends just above the monobrow.
0: Yeah, Lovecraft doesn't make it easy for us
1: to imagine these things. No. (laughs) But on the other hand, I mean, maybe people just don't bother looking at their faces too much because they're too taken with the kangaroo legs bouncing around.
0: That's true. It was a paw, fully two feet and a half across, and equipped with formidable talons. After it came another paw, and after that a great black-furred arm, to which both of the paws were attached by short forearms. Then two pink eyes shone, and the head of the awakened Gug sentry, large as a barrel, wobbled into view. The eyes jutted two inches from each side, shaded by bony protuberances overgrown with coarse hairs. But the head was chiefly terrible because of the mouth. That mouth had great yellow fangs and ran from the top to the bottom of the head, opening vertically instead of horizontally. Paging Dr. Freud. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. Pretty cool though, right?
1: It is, yeah, particularly with the arms. But yeah, the hairy face and the the vertical mouth with the fangs. This feels like Howie working some stuff out. (laughs) Also,
0: they've got, like, they're about 20 foot tall, these things, but their paws are two and a half foot across, which mm. is pretty massive in proportion to their bodies.
1: Oh,
2: yeah. Well, you know what i say about big feet, big shoes.
0: <laughs> and on that bombshell
2: cliffhanger, we're going to leave it that our dear friend Carter is going to get his dice ready to make his sand check against the Gug, but we'll pick that up next time. thank, thank you, you, thank you. Thank you you're listening to the good friends of jackson elias you can find show notes for this episode at blasphemous where you'll also find all our social media links we have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our redbubble store if you're enjoying this show please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash good friends of jackson elias thank you for listening
1: It is that time, once again, when we would like to say thank you to people. Thank you, first of all, to you for listening to this podcast. Thank you to anyone who has ever backed us on Patreon. And we have a number of new people to thank by name.
0: Yep, starting off with a thanks to Stefan Salin, And also, thank you much to the singular Jared. And thank you very much to Angel Ballesteros. And thanks to Ryan Blodgett. And thank you very much to Tim Jennings. And thank you very much to
1: Will Skolochenko, And big thanks going to Richard. And thanks also to the singular domain. And thank you very much to Ari Sarianidis. And as ever, if we have completely mangled any of your names, which we almost certainly have, then please let us know and we'll do it again and get it right next time, or at least as close to right as our mouths will let us. Without being horizontal or vertical.
0: <laughs> well, horizontal. Mm-hmm.
2: Oh, I'm sure <laughs> even horizontally we'll still mess it
1: up <laughs> and if you are enjoying the podcast please do let people know if you can post a review somewhere wherever you get your podcast from uh, we would love that or if you just mention it on social media or alternatively if you just tell your cats about it and let them tell everyone else in dreams I mean, that that works too but we would love it if you just got the good word of Jackson out there, somehow.
0: Okay, well, until next time, you've been listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias, and it's a goodbye from me, and cheerio from me, and a
2: farewell from me.
1: Hello? com.
2: Flat Earthers were right. Ah.